0: Thank you, Adam, for presenting our text that way. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. And don't worry, I'll uh, read it again during the sermon. So, brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, a a few weeks ago, uh, Sarah and I watched uh, the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma. If you haven't seen it, uh, I'd highly recommend it. And then after watching it, I'd also recommend going and quitting social media. Uh, Put simply, the documentary explores the -the behind-the-scenes thought and, to be honest, manipulation uh, that goes into creating the all-powerful algorithms that power today's social media websites. Uh, For instance, through interviews with some of the same developers and programmers who originally wrote those algorithms, the filmmakers detail how sites like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Google, and others have intentionally tried to make themselves as addictive as possible in order to suck up as much uh, of our time and attention as they can. Um, The developers that they interview, uh, some of whom now regret their work, talk about how they spent almost as much time in school learning about human psychology as they did coding and computer programming. So that as they wrote those algorithms, they wouldn't just be hacking the internet, but they would actually be hacking us. And the reason, of course, is because it makes those companies a lot of money. The more time we're on their sites, the more revenue they can generate from advertisers who pay them for our attention. If they can keep our eyeballs glued to their content, they can more easily guarantee to those advertisers that they can get their content in front of our eyes as well. And so what those former developers talk about in the film is doing everything that they could to make sure that we look away from our phones, our tablets, our computers, and laptops as little as possible. The less we do, the more commercial content they can sell, the more ads they can flash across the screen, and the more money they can rake in. But as the documentary also details, and this is why many of those developers now wish that they hadn't done what they did, the effect that growing consumption of social media has had on us as a society has been chilling. I won't go into all the details of it, though I could probably talk for hours about this. Uh, But put simply, since 2010, when social media really started to take off, our society has become increasingly and measurably more polarized. Uh, We're more depressed and anxious than we used to be. Suicide and self-harm rates are way up and unfortunately still increasing. And we're also less satisfied, less content, and less happy than we used to be. As Eugene Peterson writes in his book on the Psalms of Ascent, a long obedience in the same direction, and he wrote this long before social media was a thing, but I think it still applies. The enormous entertainment industry in America is a sign of the depletion of joy in our culture. Society is a bored, gluttonous king employing a court jester to divert it after an overindulgent meal. But that kind of joy never penetrates our lives never changes our basic constitution. The effects are extremely temporary, a few minutes, a few hours, a few days at most. When we run out of money or things to scroll past, I would say, the joy trickles away. We cannot make ourselves joyful. Joy cannot be commanded, purchased, or arranged. And I might add that it can't be posted, snapped, hashtagged, or liked either. But Peterson offers some hope. And this is what he writes. There is something we can do. We can decide to live in response to the abundance of God and not under the dictatorship of our own poor needs. We can decide to live in the environment of a living God and not our own dying selves. We can decide to center ourselves in the God who generously gives and not in our own egos, which greedily grab. One of the certain consequences of such a life is joy, the kind expressed in Psalm 126. Joy. You know, that just might work as the antidote to our social dilemma. And so I guess it's a good thing that the psalm we're looking at this morning, Psalm 126, is so chock full of it. Put simply, Psalm 126 is a joyful song about the restoration of Jerusalem. It was was likely written after the Israelites had returned uh, from their exile in Babylon. And it delights, absolutely delights, in the renewal and rejuvenation that God has brought about in Jerusalem as the exiles returned home. I mean, just listen to what the psalmist says in the opening verses of this psalm. In verses one through three, he writes, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. And we are filled with joy. You can just hear the joy in those lines, right? Right? The celebration, the ecstasy, there's almost this kind of dizzying disbelief, if you will, that God has been so good to them. That's actually what the psalmist seems to be saying in the second half of verse one when he says, we were like those who dreamed. He's saying we almost couldn't believe it. It didn't seem real. We felt like we were dreaming. That's how good God has been to us. That's how great a restoration he's brought about. That's how wonderful a reversal of our fortunes he's worked. And it fills them with joy. All they can do is laugh. All they wanna do is sing. You ever been at a party like that? maybe a a family get-together. We used to have holidays like that at at my grandma Hans. Um, It would be a a bit later in the evening after all the festivities and the presents. Everyone would be back at the table and snacking on the leftovers from earlier in the day. Um, We'd all be a bit slap happy. Uh, The Baileys and the adults' decaf coffee certainly didn't hurt, right? But there was also this genuine joy that just was, was running as kind of an undercurrent in the room, running through everyone there. And we talk and joke and laugh, and as a kid, I, I just remember enjoying those moments together with my family so much that I never wanted them to end. Well, that's what the Israelites are feeling here in Psalm 126. They're a bit slap-happy, delirious, overcome by the goodness of their God. Their joy is palpable, tangible, real, and they don't want it to end. I mean, even their neighbors take notice. The party's so good that others on the block can't ignore it. In in verse two, the nations, even around Israel, say, the Lord has done great things for them. And in the very next line, God's people respond, yes, the Lord has done great things for us. And it fills us with joy. And that joy over God's restoration here in Jerusalem, this celebration of what he did after they came back from exile, it's meant to be contagious. That's why this psalm was included in the Psalms of Ascent here. Uh, throughout the series, we've said that these psalms were the songs that the Jewish pilgrims would sing on their way to Jerusalem for the different religious festivals there. And this one was a reminder. It was a reminder of, of the joy that the exiles had had when they came back from Babylon. It was meant to be a reminder for those pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem. It was meant to buoy them, rub off on them, and kindle that same party-like sense of joy in them as they themselves now approached Jerusalem, just like those exiles so long before. After all, the psalmist is saying, if God could work that kind of restoration and renewal in the past, if he could do such great things for our ancestors, if he could bring about that kind of joy for them, then he can do it for us still today too. And that's where the second half of this psalm comes in. Verses four through six, the psalmist writes, restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. In other words, the psalmist is saying, we might be down and out from time to time. We might be crying, weeping, sowing our tears around, but our God is still a God of restoration. He's still a God who renews, a God who redeems, and a God who can take the tears that we've sown and grow them into a harvest of joy. He's done it in the past, and we believe that he can do it again. In fact, we believe that he's doing it right now. That's the lesson the psalm offered those pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem to worship. That's the instruction in discipleship that it had for them. To be part of God's people, to be one of his followers, to be a disciple is to be someone who looks to the past and who looks to the future and then is filled with joy because they see God at work in both of them. And the same should be true of us as God's disciples still today. At the start of his chapter on this psalm, Eugene Peterson includes a quote by poet and children's author Phyllis McGinley that I found interesting. She said, I have read that during the process of canonization, which is the process of making someone a saint, the Catholic Church demands proof of joy in the candidate. And although I have not been able to track down chapter and verse, I like the suggestion that dourness is not a sacred attribute. Dourness is not a sacred attribute. How good is that? And it's exactly right, too. I don't know if, uh, if McKinley was a, a Christian or not. I actually tried to look it up. Um, but at the very least, she gets that right about the Christian faith. As Christians sacred or dourness is not a sacred attribute. Instead, as Christians, we should be people of joy. We actually talked about this back on Easter, you remember? Probably not. That's okay, I didn't remember it either until I went looking for that sermon. I was like, when did I preach that? A few weeks ago, somebody actually asked me what I preached that same week, and I couldn't even tell them, so I certainly can't fault you if you don't remember. Um, Anyway, back on Easter, we were also talking about this theme of joy. We were specifically talking about the joy that the Israelites would have had as they made their way out of Egypt, out of their enslavement in Egypt during the Exodus, right? And we said that we needed to have that kind of joy as Christians, and you remember what we said about that? There should be no such thing as a crabby Christian. And you all laughed. I said, it's because you know some, don't you? There should be no such thing as a crabby Christian or a believer that people just want to avoid. And there shouldn't. There shouldn't be such a thing as a grumpy, dour, down-in-the-dumps Christian. Christians can't be Eeyores. We need to be Tiggers. Can you tell them the parent of small children? I read a lot of Winnie the Pooh. After all, joy is the second fruit of the spirit, right? Love, joy. It's right there. Second in line. As soon as you experience the salvation of Jesus Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, one of the very first things it ought to produce in you is joy. It's non-negotiable. It should be undeniable. It should fill us up and ooze out of every part of who we are as believers. I mean, if you're going to use social media, and I hope you don't after my introduction this morning, but if you're going to, then joy should be all over your profile. How many people do you think can say that these days? That their social media platforms, their profiles, their online presence more than anything else exudes and shares joy? Not many, right? And yet as Christians, they should. It should be in every email we write. As a Christian, no one should get an email from you and see their name in in their inbox and go, I really don't want to open that. Right? It should be in every conversation you have, every interaction, every relationship. It's what you should be known for at work, at school, in your neighborhood. It's what people should experience from you when you're with them and remember about you when you're not. It's what people should see from you at the town council meeting, the school board meeting, and your kids' soccer games. When the ref sees you coming, you've got to think, man, I'm glad that parent's here. Not what are they going to yell about this week. Most importantly, it's what people ought to see flow out of us here in worship. Joy. It's a foundational part of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. It simply is. But why? I mean, what is joy after all? That might seem kind of obvious, but I actually think it's an important question. You see, we tend to use that word joy the same way that we use the word happy. We think they're synonyms for each other. Uh, They're interchangeable, identical, indistinguishable. They mean the same thing. They refer to the same feeling. They describe the same emotion. Joy is happiness and happiness is joy, right? Only they're not. I don't know about their broader uses, how our culture might use those different terms or how people in other disciplines might use them, but at least biblically, joy and happiness are two very, very different things. You see, happiness is dependent on our circumstances. It's a feeling, it's an emotion, and so if our circumstances are good, then we'll feel that emotion. We'll feel happy. If things are good, we're going, we're going our way, the way that we like them, then we're going to be happy, right? But what happens if our circumstances change? What happens if things aren't good, if they aren't going our way, if they aren't the way that we like them to be? Well, then we're not going to feel happy, are we? We're going to feel something else. Instead, we're going to feel sad. And so happiness can be kind of a fickle thing. We'll actually talk more about happiness when we get to Psalm 128 in a couple of weeks, which Peterson themes as on the topic of happiness. But because our happiness is tied to our circumstances, the fact of the matter is that it can change very quickly. This is part of why our culture's emphasis on happiness, the pursuit of happiness, just be happy, do whatever makes you feel happy, is actually a pretty shallow way to live and not a very good foundation on which to base our lives because it's so subject to change. But joy, joy is different. You see, at least according to the Bible, joy isn't an emotion, it's not a feeling. Instead, it's more like a state of being, a mode of existence, an identity, a way of operating. And that's because biblically speaking, joy isn't dependent on our circumstances, instead, It's dependent on the Lord. Put simply, our joy as Christians comes from God. It comes from who he is. It comes from what he's done for us. It comes from the salvation and identity that we have in him. It comes from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within us that works to produce in us the response of joy that naturally comes from being in a relationship with God. And so, what that means is that as a Christian, joy is possible in every circumstance. That's much, much easier said than done. But it's also true. As Peterson writes, one of the most interesting and remarkable things Christians learn is that laughter does not exclude weeping. Christian joy is not an escape from sorrow. Pain and hardship still come, but they are unable to drive out the happiness. I would substitute the word joy there. Pain and hardship still come, but they are unable to drive out the joy of the redeemed. He goes on. Laughter is a result of living in the midst of God's great works. Enjoyment is not an escape from boredom, but a plunge by faith into God's work. The joy comes because God knows how to wipe away tears and in his resurrection work create the smile of new life. Joy is what God gives, not what we work up. Laughter is the delight that things are working together for good to those who love God, not the giggles that betray the nervousness of a precarious defense system. The joy that develops in the Christian way of discipleship is an overflow of spirits that comes from feeling good, not about yourself, but about God. We find that his ways are dependable, his promises sure. The way I like to explain all of this is is with an analogy. Um, Back before Sarah and I got married, I lived in a duplex with a few roommates in the Washington Heights neighborhood of Milwaukee. Um, Our apartment was the lower level of a pretty old house. It was built in either the late 1800s or early 1900s. And so like a lot of old houses, it had quite a bit of charm to it. The downside though, was that it was also pretty drafty. So during the winter, which lasts pretty much forever in Wisconsin, uh, it's like Narnia there, always winter and no Christmas, um, our house would get pretty cold. And so what did we do? Well, We'd we'd go and we'd turn up the thermostat, right? Or put on a sweater. We would do something to change our circumstances so that we would feel comfortable again. And that's what happiness is like. It's dependent on our circumstances. We're happy when things are just right. okay? But if it's too hot or too cold, we need to do something to adjust those circumstances so that we can be happy again. But joy joy was like the air itself in the apartment. And the thing about that was that when I lived in that duplex, the fact was regardless of whether that air was too hot or too cold or just right and it was the perfect comfort zone, regardless of what it was, I could still always breathe it. The temperature of the air might not have always been what I wanted it to be, but breathing, living, existing there was still always possible. And the same is true for our joy as Christians. Because it's not dependent on our circumstances, because it's not tied to our situation, because it's not based on what's going on around us and all the ways that that can change, our joy is always possible. The truth is our circumstances might change, our situation might shift, the details of our lives might look different, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. But God remains the same day after day, yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and every day after as well. And so that's why our joy never changes as Christians because God doesn't change and we can always take joy in Him. And that brings us to the gospel this morning. You see, our joy is only possible Because of Jesus Christ. We started this series with this passage a few weeks ago, but it fits well again here. The author of the book of Hebrews writes this in chapter 12. He says, Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. It's right there. Who do we fix our eyes on? Jesus. We look to him, he doesn't change, and so our joy is always possible. For the joy set before him, he had his eye on another goal too. He endured the cross, scorning the shame, its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And that's the gospel. Jesus lived, died, and rose again so that we could be made right with God so that we could be restored to the way he intended us to live in the beginning, and so that we could be filled with his Holy Spirit and live as his people. And so that one day when he comes again, he might bring to completion that good work in us. That's the foundation and source of our joy as Christian believers. And we are called to live out that joy each and every day of our lives. So don't be a crabby Christian. Dourness is not a sacred attribute. Don't be someone people want to avoid. Instead, be people of the infectious joy of God. Because after all, the truth is that he has given us so much cause for joy. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for the joy that we have. Our circumstances change, our lives look different day to day, week to week, year to year. Sometimes we're happy, sometimes we're sad, but because of the salvation that you have made possible for us through Jesus Christ, our joy is always possible. Through the work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts and our lives, help us to live as people of that joy. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.